Hello, everyone, and welcome to AI Literacy, your podcast about artificial intelligence. We're your hosts. I'm Anna Regina Entis. And I'm Victoria Rubley. Thank you for tuning in to a new episode of AI Literacy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of AI Literacy. Today, we're here with Carlos Andres Arias Robledo, who is a data scientist at Flixbus and previously worked as the director of data science at both the company's algorithm at Admin IT. For the people who, do, who don't know Flixbus, um, Flixbus is a bus company which offers long distance bus rides in 36 countries in Europe and the United States. But at the same time, it only owns one single bus and does not employ bus drivers. And with normal travel conditions, pre-COVID times, uh, Flixbus is usually offering around 400,000 long-distance bus connections per day. But before we'll answer the question how Flixbus is managing to offer all around the world bus rides every single day and owning only one single bus, we wanted to ask you a bit more about you and your path, Carlos. And yeah, thank you very much for being here with us at IA Literacy. Thank you for inviting me. On your LinkedIn, you're stating that you are a statistician by profession and a programmer by hobby. What does that mean for your career and life? So the reason why I put that uh, programmer uh, as a hobby is that uh, when I look back in the past, I, I think I was a programmer way before I even knew it. So especially in data science, the way that you program is a bit different from like, let's say a regular programmer. It has this scientific part in it, right? That you're always like exploring, experimenting, uh, creating hypotheses and trying to validate them. And basically this is really correlated with games of the past. I mean, they don't do it like this anymore. <laughs> But when I was a, a really small kid, I used to play these games where you basically get no instructions at all. You need to start experimenting, uh, making hypotheses of what it is that you're supposed to do, and then start testing and see what works. So that's similar how programming in data science works, right? So you, you get some data, and then you explore and see what this data tells you. And once you have enough knowledge, you can form some hypotheses and then you test them, right? That's why it's a hobby, because I think I really like this even before I knew that it existed. And the statistician is because basically my bachelor's is in statistics. So when I did this, actually data science as a word didn't kind of existed. There was machine learning, of course, but it was mostly for the engineering. So for us, a statistician, getting into there was like a, something new. You're actually the first one in our podcast. Like we're, you're the first statistician we're interviewing here at AI Literacy. So you basically decided, okay, I'm doing the bachelor's in statistics. And then in addition, also a master's in statistics. And then a second master's in business, right, at NYU. So what made you, de you decide to... Um, add a degree in business to your statistician profile? Like why not, for example, a degree in machine learning or, or data science? Because you're also, um, you, you're also writing in your LinkedIn that you're looking to improve your knowledge in advanced modeling tools and, um, and deep learning. So um, why a business degree then? Sure. Um, so one of the things that I've seen with colleagues of mine in data science uh, and also like developers themselves, like data engineers that we also work 
very closely with them uh, is that there is like this lack of understanding or actually or the pursuit of understanding the, the 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 whole purpose of what they're doing right so there is this first part of translating like a business problem into a data science project and most data scientists they go directly once you have a data science project ready for them so I was working in, in algorithm at that time and, and basically we were dealing directly with the clients and there was this struggle, right? To really, really understand what they wanted because they maybe say what they want, but they actually don't know what they want. <laughs> so it's more translating these business needs into data science projects. And these, these masters really helped me with that. What was your biggest um, AI project that had to do with uh, the algorithms you told us about? But one thing that was really, let's say, uh, for me, the biggest, because also it was close to my heart, it was the capstone project of the of these final masters. So basically, I'll, uh, our project was to... Uh, so in data science and also uh, for developers, there, there are these tools to program. So they are called IDEs or in general, like applications that you can use to help you program faster, right? To be more efficient when you are coding. And most of them, they claim that you will be more efficient if they if you use their tools. But as a scientist, you might think like, okay, but how can you prove this, right? So basically our project was that. So we 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 found out some volunteers. We created these these software that basically allow us to monitor while you work on these editors and IDEs and see like what are your patterns. So let's say that these these tools, they have some shortcuts and we just try to see how much of these shortcuts you use. And uh, there are pretty amazing things that are actually, uh, you wouldn't think it, it doesn't even apply only to coding. Like even let's say that you're working on a Word document and you sometimes want to copy something right? So you're supposed to press control C, right? But if you're like really distrustful, you press it many. So for a person that programs, doing it once, it's okay, it's fine. doesn't take that long, right? But if you do these patterns a lot and you're doing and you're coding all day, if you add at all this time of what we call inefficient keystrokes, then you're actually losing a lot of time. And this is basically the outcome of this project. We we had to do a very thorough analysis of multiple patterns of things that you can do in these editors that can consider like bad practices, things that you could have done faster. So the purpose of the algorithm was to say, okay, are you actually better while using these editors or not? And that's what we found. For our sample, we, we found significant results in terms of the difference between people that were using uh, these tools. And when I say using them, it's just not being there by using all the, the shortcut commands that the, these tools uh, provide to make you be faster. Compared to the ones that just use it and just don't use any of these shortcut commands, they, they usually out, outperform them. They, they take less time in doing some tasks that we predefined. For the experiment. This is something that was pre-Flixbus, right? Uh, the, the company you worked for or like for your final project, like you said, for university. Um, for for Flixbus, we're going to dig a bit deeper about the projects there. So um, just before we do that, could you maybe 
tell um, our listeners a bit more into, in detail than I said before um, how Flixbus works. How can a company, a bus company, own one bus and offer 400,000 daily bus routes, long distance bus routes? Um, how does that business model work? And yeah, how can our, our listeners imagine this? Yeah, so basically, uh, we we encounter this issue a lot. Like even when I say that I work at Flixbus, they ask me if I'm a driver. <laughs> But uh, Flixbus, in its own, is a technology company, right? So we're basically our focus is uh, is more on the app and the user experience. Uh, so basically, what we provide is the technology. So we connect uh, what we call our bus partners uh, because it's. The way that it works is not that we rent the buses or anything. We we form alliances with bus providers. Sometimes we also do mergers with other, let's say, bus businesses. And in that process, we could acquire some assets. So we probably have more buses now. Uh, but the fact remains the same. So the objective of, of Flixbus is to provide our users with the best experience uh, in, uh, in terms of mobility. Right, that goes to most of what I do, which is the basically the demand forecasting. Right, so I mean, w once you have the data, and in order to save the to serve this objective of having a better user experience, not only while in the ride, but also when you're booking, uh, so when you're interacted with the application, so there are many things there, and it's all data driven, or at least that's our objective. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit of what you do, um, the demand forecasting? Like how much time in advance do you forecast the demand and what data are you using to predict the routes? Yes, sure. So just uh, like an introduction of what uh, forecasting is. Uh, I, I like usually to give this example, like forecasting in, in its own, uh, like, It, 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 you can imagine like uh, these games of uh, complete the sentence, right? So if I tell you complete this sentence and I say, how are, and then just put one uh, space, uh, what would you say goes after that? You. <laughs> yeah. So pretty simple in that case, right? But if I tell you like, I don't know, welcome to, that becomes Ooh. a bit harder. Paris. For us, <laughs> it's Paris. <laughs> I was thinking Saint-Tropez because oh. of the song. <laughs> True. Yeah, you see, now it becomes a bit more complex. So imagine, uh, so forecasting is all about this, is identifying patterns, many patterns that interact with each other and try to come up with something that is feasible or like, uh, uh, like continue this pattern, right? It's not only what you see right now, it's try to figure out how this pattern will look like in the future. And the easiest way to think about that is that in time series, we basically, one approach is to decompose the history of the demand. So you, you usually put like, let's say the daily demand, you organize all the demand day by day or uh, like chronologically. That's usually what you see in these time series plots. And then you see patterns there, right? So maybe you see that uh, every Monday, like is the highest value of the week. So this is what we call seasonality, right? So seasonality can take many periods. So it can be like for the week, for the month, for the year. We also have what is called the cycles. And basically cycles can be anything, but is actually not fixed. So in for our case, most of it uh, is related to the seasons. 
right? Seasons in reality are not that fixed. So you will see they, they talk about the summer, but you cannot actually say when the summer starts and when it ends. Every year is kind of different, right? And also depends on each business what actually for us, the summer when it starts uh, might be not still summer, but it's like the anticipation of summer. So this kind of cycles is also one important part of the time series. And finally, you have the trend, right? So are you are you growing? Are you steady? Are you going down? Once you take all, all the pieces, all the other pieces is like, where are you going to? So if you take all of this into consideration, the seasonality, the cycles, the trends, um, how much time in advance do you pl start planning all this? Do you already start planning next year's summer? Yeah, it really depends on the market and the demand, of course. So uh, there has to be a trade-off. Uh, when you're a data-driven company, one of the key aspects is that you need to be able to react fast. So there are many different things, but let's say that in general, uh, I would say that the more ahead you can plan, the better, right? So we have, of course, uh, routes that consistently have data, a lot of data for the past. So this, you can actually plan a year ahead. You could, you could see how it would look like for the next year, right? Because you already have enough data. But for new lines, it's hard to tell. So you will probably plan a little more on the go. And for new lines, of course, there's the not much to do in terms of history of their own routes. So you usually look at similar similar routes. That's what uh, that's what I was wondering right now, because you're saying you're looking at the past and at the past data of, of a specific country. But if you have a new country, you don't you don't have this as a source. So a lot of data which you, you, could, you could use to predict uh, the demand in Germany because it's the, the biggest mar market uh, for Flixbus. Um, you cannot do that for, for a new country. So how do you proceed? So what data do you use? If it's not past data of this country, do you take into consideration competitors' data? Or um, how, do you, yeah, how do you see any patterns? Basically, in those kind of cases, demand kind of comes like a, not the main driver. So usually when we move to a new place, uh, you've probably seen this, but uh, one of the objectives is take the market, right? So it's, it's just like, um, it's all about that, like uh, getting getting the, the consumers first, right? One of our main drivers is, of course, population. So you will never start in a new country with the smallest cities. You you try to, to go first to, to the main cities, right? So in these cases, like I say, like demand kind of like becomes as a side objective and also depending on the market is, is really hard to tell what demand will be. So the, you, you use external data in these cases. So the AI plays a part there by using other kinds of data like population or the condition of the, uh, like wh where is the, the highest flows from a city to a city already within other means of transportation, like train and things like this. And what about never before seen situations? Like how did you deal with uh, our favorite topic? Like <laughs> the last year was uh, the travel regulations with COVID. It was changing on a daily basis. How, how did you predict um, the demand during those things? Did you use AI to manage this challenge? Yes, of course. So actually, that, that is when a data scientist shines, because basically, it's all about this, like, like, okay, now we need to form hypotheses, and now we need to test them. And because it's something new, you need to get creative. 
So one thing that we saw, especially in Italy, uh, is that right before the, the start of the, let's say that there was some drops, of course, because of the lockdowns and everything, like there was no possibility to, to have rights. But just before that, uh, there is this tool called Google Trends. Maybe you guys heard of this, but it's, it's, it's data publicly available about searches for specific topics. And when we started looking at this data, it, it, it was very interesting because the peak of searches for, for coronavirus and for lockdowns and things was close, but happened before a change in the behavior of our demand in this, in this, in this country specifically also in the most affected cities. So by looking into this, we were like, okay, so right now it's only Italy. Let's look at the other countries. Let's see who is the one that could be getting close to being on a, lock, uh, on a lock, lockdown and then use this information to do forecast. And actually it worked quite well. <laughs> but the problem when you are predicting things that are, uh, let's say, unprecedented, so it's also hard to get the trust of the people that make the decision. Suffice to say that after we did these predictions that were really controversial, <laughs> um, it actually became a reality. So this also gave us uh, like really good trust, uh, not only within the team, but in general within the company, that uh, the, this kind of analysis truly works. <laughs> so you basically just uh, pictured or, or thought of different scenarios and presented scenario a b c d if uh, if these are the conditions then this will be will most likely be the demand and then one of those scenarios actually came yeah so we did like a super pessimistic uh, a scenario uh, which was actually the one that was true like imagine if all europe goes into lockdown and we also have the scenarios where we say okay this will be fast it was this will be controlled fast so Maybe Italy is, a, is the focus and then there is some panic across. So it will be some drops, but not that much. Uh, and then it will recover, right? So, so we deal with many scenarios and we provided all the information. Uh, and it's most, the objective in this case is that other teams having these different scenarios, the positive result of this is that you are more prepared. Right. If one of these scenarios comes to pass, you already know it and you have a plan to react fast to it. Right. So the problem that we have in Italy is that we couldn't react fast enough uh, to this change in these uh, conditions. Right. Uh, like all the restrictions. But in other countries, we started getting faster. So this is the main advantage. I think most people wouldn't imagine that uh, a data scientist has to be that creative. So you really need to think about any possible scenario and take anything into consideration that might affect the uh, the model, right? So I think that's a very interesting. I would have never thought that. Uh... Yeah, so in this case, it's actually many different models. So when I say scenarios, so it's a lot of work because you actually need to do a model for each of them. And again, it's, it's more about like the assumptions. It's, you always, as a data scientist, you work, especially when there is so much uncertainty, then you need to start making assumptions and changing those assumptions to create all these scenarios, right? So you, you're speaking about models, okay? You need a model for each scenario. So for the listeners who uh, do not come from, from a tech background, were you, would you be able to explain uh, the process from the beginning to the end, basically, how you build a model, how you uh, 
uh, approach it um, yeah, in simple words, maybe with an example, so um, the listeners can imagine how this is working in, in the world of AI? So the first step is really, uh, and probably some, uh, I've seen that especially some junior data scientists uh, uh, skip this step, is that if you're going to do demand forecast, you really need to understand demand first. Right, so what, what, how big can this demand be? Right, a model that predicts that you're gonna sell, I don't know, uh, three billion uh, euros uh, in the next, I don't know, five years. But does it make sense? Like, do uh, does this country have enough population to generate the that amount of money? So all of these things you really need to understand first, because these are like the the rules. So. The forecast need to follow all of these, let's say, rules. So first is this understanding, like how big can it be, how small can they, what drives demand, uh, and what can affect it. So you don't jump immediately into code, right? You first think about that's like the main mistake beginners do who start to code usually, right? Yeah, because usually you will see like in courses that the data is already ready for you and clean and you just need to do the forecast you really need to understand what you are forecasting otherwise you cannot make like proper decisions in how to adjust the model afterwards and then what you do is i mean one approach is identifying all of these components right so once you see the data so let's say that is demand so we need to understand uh, what is the seasonality of our demand right what is the trend what other factors can I use? But this is the tricky part, uh, and probably nobody's, uh, no, no many people say it in these courses, is that any other type of information that you want to use to forecast the demand, you would actually have to have it also in the future. So let's say, oh, but we should use prices to, to forecast the demand, right? But uh, if you don't know the prices for the period you want to forecast, uh, you you basically cannot use it unless you also do a forecast of the price. Some variables are really easy to know in the future, like holidays, right? So we use this a lot, like demand is driven by, by holidays. So one thing is to identify how holidays impact our demand and use this as a, let's say, what we call a covariate. So these, these things like additional information that you can do to improve your forecast. So once you identify all these patterns, all these trends, at the end, it comes out, depending on the model that you use, some sort of a question like a machine that uh, you can put information on the future and it will tell you what is the expected values for your, for in this case, for the demand, right? Very interesting to, to, to think about. I think usually... If we uh, just buy a ticket and and go on the on the Flixbus, we will never think that Flixbus is already thinking when we're taking the bus next year in summer. So uh, that's really 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 interesting how you how you're approaching that. That you're basically yeah basing any decision on on your data. There's no decision taking taken without looking at the data and without uh, predicting a scenario, right? The, pro the problem is that uh, time series and forecasting is really visual. Uh, so it's hard to explain in a podcast. <laughs> Imagine that you have a straight line, right? That is going up. And somebody tells you, tell me how this line continues, right? Uh, that would be very easy, right? You just follow the line. But then start making changes on this line. Like, I don't know, maybe it's like a 
zigzag or something like this, then you continue the zigzag pattern the same way that you see it, but then you can affect it more and more, and then it becomes more co more complex, right? So, and that's just one pattern. So imagine like including this pattern and another pattern and another pattern, and then that's what you're actually seeing. So you need to take them all out. There's actually one technique that is using time series that is uh, is uh, is using the the waves. So I don't know if you've seen, but uh, a wave of sound or something like this can be de decomposing like fundamental waves. So two waves combined, they they make a new wave that has a completely different shape. So you can actually use these techniques also in time series to to try to find like these fundamental pieces that actually create the the time series in itself. And once you decompose all of this, then it's easier to do a forecast, right? So when you when you talk about decomposing for a forecast, do you um, think about the past as well? Like if, if you think about incrementality, uh, do you look at what would have happened if uh, we didn't um, if we didn't offer this one new route um, and how do you use it at Fixbus? Yes, actually, that is a, a topic that I deal with a lot. We call it incrementality. So imagine this, especially at marketing. One thing that people in business, in marketing are interested in is what is the value of the marketing channels that we are spending money on? And one way to test this is with experiments. And the cool thing is that then you can say, okay, we have different regions, right? Let's say within a country, we have some regions that are, uh, they look similar. So the patterns and the market, they are very similar. And these cities are far away enough from each other. And then you say, but this, these two cities are, are really similar in terms of their seasonality, all of the all of the pieces that I told you about. And then you say, okay, so what if we, in one of these cities, stop spending completely on a specific marketing channel, right? So basically, this is what we do. We know exactly the point when we do this. And then what we can do afterwards, we, we, let, we, we let some time pass, right? So you will have one city that basically had no spend in the channel and another one that continue normally, right? This city that continue normally, we can use it to try to forecast the past of the other city if the campaign would have remained the same. So if we didn't shut down the channel completely. So like an alternative universe going back into the past and creating a new universe where you actually say, okay, guys, don't do that. Don't, don't, don't stop uh, spending on this channel. So it's the closest thing that you can get to this alternative universe. And that's basically it. Once you have it, because you're actually forecasting the past, but in a different way, right? And then you have two universes. The one that you forecasted, that is assuming that the channel was never shut down, and the actual values that you are seeing because you actually shut down the channel. And while you, when you compare these two, you can actually find what we call the incremental effect. And this is the value of the money that you're putting in this channel. So basically, you're not trusting anything like a Google Analytics attribution model or any other external attribution model assigning one certain cell to one channel or whatever. You will always do it yourself and trust uh, your own tests, right? The cool thing about it is that in science, the best thing to do is have many different sources of confirmation. 
I don't know if you've seen, but uh, in, in research, for example, if somebody proposes a theory and then you find one and two or three people that actually found this by doing experiments, this is better for them, right? So incrementality and the way that we do it is more to first to validate this attribution, whatever attribution that you use it to to try to measure how close to reality it is to validate. And not only that, to help tune it. Because at the end, none of these processes are perfect. And the cool thing about it is that you can use one to help improve the other one. So you can use these results and say, okay, Google result is like this, but maybe they are over-attributing these. So I can give you an example. We have these two channels in marketing, what we call SEA brand which is basically when you go and look for Flixbus and you see the link that says add. And then we have SEO, which is uh, just the natural way. Uh, I mean, if you don't pay anything and you optimize your site, if, you, if somebody looks for your site, they will probably find it somewhere in this list, right? So ideally, you want to be at the top. And this is what we call SEO. For that, you don't pay anything. So one test that we did is, okay, what happened if we stop spending on the link that says the ad? And what we saw is that it was mostly a commodity. So people stopped seeing this, this link and they just go to the, to the one that doesn't say the ad. So everybody was just shifting from one channel to the other one. That's really interesting. So to wrap it up, how would you say will will this change in the future? How will your um, demand for forecasting change? Do you think most uh, scenarios can be automatically done or like how is AI involved in, in the future of demand forecasting? What do you think? There are different aspects here. One thing that I uh, I still believe in terms of demand forecasting is your ability to adapt fast. So in a scenarios like this, it's super important. Like, to be totally honest, in, a, in normal scenarios, forecasting the demand is not really that hard or also doesn't add that much value because you are already used to the behavior, right? So once you have in a stable market, uh, knowing how much you're going to sell is not that difficult. But... This truly shines uh, when these, let's say, normal times uh, are affected or for new markets that uh, they have like different behaviors. So the future in which I see demand forecasting is, is that the objective is that for you to be a truly data-driven uh, company in terms of decision-making for these, for these uh, demand uh, problems, you need to have all the information fast and be able to react, right? So it's not about just having one value, like we saw with Corona, is is having the scenarios and be prepared for them so you can react fast. So the way that I see is more close collaboration that uh, the data that you see is is actually to 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 help business uh, and and any other of the really important parts of the planning to make the decision. Thank you very much for uh, for this insightful interview. Really, really interesting how this is actually working. How companies are able to predict how and when and where we're going. Thank you very much for being here today with us. Thank you guys for inviting me. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode and want to learn more about AI make sure to subscribe to AI Literacy on Spotify, SoundCloud, or your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for being with us today. 
We can't wait to share other insights on AI with you and help you become an AI literate.